0: Becky, thank you so much. Sunridge, good morning to you. I hope that you are doing well and that you are ready to participate from the comfort of wherever you are logging in from this morning. My name is Jed, and it is an absolute privilege and honor to get to serve as one of our pastors on staff here at Sunridge. So, whether Sunridge is your home church family or you've actually never been able to physically Be in our building and you've just been joining us remotely, whether you've been here for a long time or it's even your first time this morning, we are just so glad that you are here. I'll have to tell you, I really do miss you. I miss all of your faces. I miss all the little interactions that I'm so accustomed to getting on mornings like this, even though it's been, what, six or seven weeks. I can't tell you how much I miss physically huddling up with our worship and tech team on Sunday morning before we take to the stage. Patricia James, I could really use a big hug. Joel, I miss sitting next to you during the sermon. Marv walking by and fist bumping you before I get there. There are so many of you who I miss. I even thought as I was clipping up my microphone this morning that typically Don Wu, you're the one that does that pre-service ritual with me. So again, there are so many of you that I could list by name. I absolutely miss you and love you. And uh, shout out, happy birthday to Papa Mike, because that's a thing as well. Hey, we are in the third week of a series entitled God is where we are attempting to understand and rediscover the character of our creator and his heart and his image and his nature and how we as people have been created in his His image to bear and reflect that. And so this morning, why don't you type the header for our message into your chat box, God is love. Again, if you're joining us and you can comment, go ahead and put in God is love. Love. Now, I know that you have heard more than likely many sermons in your lifetime about this. You probably know the Bible verses. You have been at weddings where the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, is read to you. So to get us engaged a little bit more, why don't you also type in, I would love to hear this sermon because, quite frankly, you might not want to. And so after you have typed that in, why don't you also put in Father forgive me for the dishonesty this morning. And regardless of whether or not you're excited to hear another sermon on love, my hope and prayer today is that in some form or fashion and in some moment, you and I, and really myself included, uh, that we would be impacted by who God is as love. So I'd like for us to recap a little bit where we've been, where we are today, and where we intend to be in this series. And so last week, and if you have not listened to it, I encourage you to go back into our sermon archives or onto our Facebook live page and watch the past few sermons. Britt has done an incredible job. And last week, Britt talked about how God is sovereign, how God is in control. And when we say that God is in control, and this week we move to god being loved, we also have to consider that when next week Britt talks about how God is light and how in him there is no darkness at all, all three of these things go incredibly together. Because when we say that God is sovereign, we say that he's in control, and then we look at this world around us and we see darkness, and we see evil, and we see suffering, we feel as though often those things are incompatible to his loving nature. And throughout scripture, we find preserved for us over and over and over again, common sentiment that would ask these questions like, why is this happening? Or what are you doing? Or how is this loving? Now, I will not be able to, in one sermon, solve these philosophical and theological and personal questions of theodicy that deal with evil and pain and suffering, nor can I speak on behalf of whatever it is that you are currently facing or have been through. But there are a few things that I think are incredibly helpful for us as we consider who God is and the bearing that it has for us. And so I've got a couple of things that I'd like for us to potentially work through before I speak specifically to God being loved. And the first statement is this, in his sovereignty, God created us with the power and capacity to choose. Again, in God's sovereignty, with all of his unlimited power and control. What is amazing about that Genesis account, after God has created and created and created at the climax of it, when he creates man and woman in his image, he has done so after the symphony of creation. And so he has instilled within us as well the power and capacity to create and to choose what we're going to be a part of. And we know that we don't have unlimited control. We know certainly that there is so much outside of our control. And yet, part of our responsibility is learning how to grapple with the fact that God, in His sovereignty, sovereignly decided that you and I would get to choose, for better or worse... I can prove power and capacity to choose right now. In your chat box, why don't you type in Bruce Almighty? Go ahead and do that. Levi here is snickering from the floor. Leaves, do you like that movie? Classic, he says. Bruce Almighty. And and here's the deal. From this stage where I sit this morning, there is a sense of power that I have as the one who is speaking and live streamed to you to direct a lot of your thoughts today but you from wherever you are you yourself have the power and the capacity to choose whether or not you are going to type in those very words and we'll get back to good old Bruce in a little bit here's the second thing that I'd like for us to consider God so highly values free will because love is a choice and we can actively choose along or against his will and I was thinking about this in relation to the question that Britt posed last week in speaking about God's control, where Britt asked, why does God so value free will, which sets up this idea that love is an active choice? And throughout Scripture, we can see admonitions and encouraging and wor- warnings and for us as people and for those who it was originally written to, to actively choose to choose God, to remember, to not forsake him. And when we look at our own lives and we also look at the text we see time and time again that the tension between our choice and God's will, what he wants for us is on full display. Look at one of these favorite proverbs of mine, Proverbs chapter 19 verse 3 which says one's own folly leads to ruin, yet the heart rages against the Lord. Do you see the tension there of how easy it is for us in our own decisions to lead to our own demise? And yet how when we come confronted to those things, often we want to blame them. We want the responsibility abdicated from us and placed elsewhere. Or consider this scene from the prophet of Jeremiah when God is speaking through him to denounce an evil that is so twisted And God writes, Because the people have forsaken me and profaned this place by making offerings in it to other gods, whom neither they nor their ancestors nor the kings of Judah have known, and because they have filled this place with the blood of the innocent, and gone on building the high places of Baal to burn their children in the fire as burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not command or decree, nor did it enter my mind. Therefore, the days are surely coming, says the Lord, when this place shall no more be called Topheth or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. And there isn't a way for us to neatly and tidily consider the theology of what it means for God to be in a position where He is looking at evil, where He tells Jeremiah He is not the one who predetermined or foreordained this, and yet we find again. It not being an easy thing to deal with. It's there. What about Mark chapter 3, where Jesus himself comes toe-to-toe with this idea of evil and whether or not God is the one who has predetermined it. Mark chapter 3, in verse 22, it says, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebul, And by the ruler of demons, he casts out demons. And he, Jesus, called to them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. But his end has come. I'm thinking about all three of those texts and many more. And I'm thinking about my own life, and I'm thinking about the news that I've seen, and I'm thinking about the things that really I cannot even begin to comprehend when it comes to pain and evil and suffering. And so when I look at this truth and affirmation that God is love, and I want to ask those difficult questions, which I feel and know that God has given us the capacity to be able to ask, where can I ground myself? Where can I find footing? What do we do What do we do with the fact that we want things to be systematized and rationalized and for it to all make certain sense when our feeling and our perception, what we see is that it doesn't seem compatible? Well, I'm not just going to leave you with ideas that it's incompatible and while you just have to deal with it, I'm going to take us back to the very first week reminded us of something that I constantly have to ground myself in, and it's this. God is equals Jesus is. You see, when we say that God is love, it's really easy for individuals to take that text from 1 John chapter 4 and to warp it in a way that it is distanced from Jesus, to make it an esoteric or philosophical proclamation that love is God. And it's not so simple as doing that because our definitions of love and how we experience it and what we would call it are so subjective. It's such an abstract thing to say love is God. And if I were to go from that place to just say love is God, I could ramble on and on for a long time and not really help us with much. But when I ground myself and when we say God is equals Jesus is, in other words, God is love because of Jesus the Christ, then we haven't distanced or misunderstood who. He is intending and calling us to be. Now, as I was just going on to this stream, I, I realized that uh, I was going to ask Bob and Heather to submit a link. Uh, into our Facebook comment section where I was going to have you watch a little scene from Bruce Almighty. I'm a little bit thrown off this morning because I was intending to show that clip in service live, but we found out that due to copyright infringements, it wouldn't be right for us to show that. And so Bob and Heather, you can paste that into our chat right now. And later on, if you guys want to see a comical theological explanation of God and free will and love, and choice you can go ahead and watch that later but let's get back to where we said we were that god is who jesus is that jesus is the revelation of God's love, that we take this abstract idea and we concretely in human form incarnate the living word, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, that Jesus himself shows us who God is and what true love really means. So here are a few things for us to consider. Number one, Jesus demonstrates that since God is love, There's an active invitation for us into a new way of living. When we see Jesus in the Gospels, we find him in Matthew chapter 4, bursting on this scene, and in verse 12 it says, Now when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. He left Nazareth and made his home in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, on the road by the sea, across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. Verse 17, from that time on, Jesus began to proclaim, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This invitation to a new way of living certainly begins and ends with Jesus. And when you look at Jesus' ministry, what he begins and continues and ends to speak of over and over is the kingdom. It's this invitation of saying that wherever he is, the kingdom is there. But not just that, there are more particular ways of that coming to fruition. It comes when people acknowledge that Jesus Christ is sovereign king And the remarkable thing about Jesus as he bursts onto the scene and he begins to speak of this kingdom with the backdrop of the Roman rule in their world. People are being exposed to a type of kingdom that does not look anything like what they expect it to be or are accustomed for it to look like. And so we look first to the type of people that Jesus goes to spend time with, the forgotten. The forsaken, the cast aside, the powerless, the marginalized, those with their backs against the wall, the saddened, the suffering, the hurt, the ill, the religiously and socially distanced, Jesus goes to be with those people. He gathers them into the presence of him as king who would not subject himself in power over them, but would go to touch and to heal and to speak and to give value. This invitation into a new way of living assumes that often the people that we would want to distance ourselves from are often those who we would think are undeserving, those who would really actually behind closed doors look more like us. Jesus goes to love and to be with them. I've been giving off a lot of names this morning of people that I appreciate, and one person in particular several weeks ago introduced a series called The Chosen. Uh, Keith Moore, I heard that you uh, maybe would have been patient zero for some of us here in infecting Sunridge with this exciting TV series, uh, The Chosen, which chronicles the life of Jesus. I know you you talked to Ben, and then Ben shared it with me on Easter Sunday, and since then, uh, I've watched several episodes of it, and I was incredibly skeptical, I will say, because I'm not the type of person who watches a lot of shows. And really, I'm not super interested in many Jesus-y or Christian things. But the thing that I've loved so much about The Chosen is that it gives us this incredibly human, real, tangible sense Of Jesus, and we look at who he goes to spend time with. And it's so striking and beautiful that these people who he goes to touch and hold and to encounter are those that society and that the elite and the religious and the powerful would not necessarily want to come into deep relational contact with. Which leads us to our second point. Jesus demonstrates that since God is love, self-sacrifice is at the heart of truly living. There are so many ways that this plays out, but when we look at the life of Jesus, we have to understand that there was sacrifice on his part in associating with the least of these. There was sacrifice to what people would consider the ways of generating crowds and power, and yet the irony of it, of course, is that as Jesus goes to the oppressed and to the less than ordinary, so many people want to be seen and touched and with him. Because can't we all, cannot we all understand what it's like to be a part of this massive world and wonder whether or not God would actually want to spend time with us? And so there's sacrifice to the way Of power. And then Jesus over and over speaks to his disciples and clearly articulates that the heart of us truly living, there is a giving up of what is assumed to be the way of generating worth and esteem and value and love. That instead of us trying to gain this whole world by being put on platforms where people see us and hear us, there's something about taking up our cross daily denying ourselves and losing our life for his life and the sake of the gospel. And I don't know all of the ways that works itself out, particularly in your life, but what I do believe is this, that often our power and capacity to choose a life that Jesus wants for us rubs up directly against what we think true and fulfilling life looks like in a day and age where we are jockeying to be seen and heard and loved. And so there's sacrifice on that end, but there's also sacrifice on the daily when we consider prayers like Jesus, as sovereign king of my life, what would you have me do? Can you type that out in your comment box? Jesus, as king, what would you have me do? How differently would our lives look if we approached not just the morning, but moments throughout with a prayer that asked him to actually be Lord. When we recognize that prayer isn't just this exchange of our circumstances changing, but a perspective in us that would be aligned with what he wants for us. And when I think about self-sacrifice, I'm not saying that Jesus is asking us to sabotage our lives or to go off into a corner and hide and to never be seen by this world or to not speak publicly or to not try to have influence. But what I am saying is that there are probably more impactful and significant ways that you and I can go about ministering and showing that Jesus is king of our lives than the ways that we might be ignoring or just naturally inclined to do. Before we get to our final point there, I want to read from 1 John chapter 4. And when I say final point, I mean the -the fill-in-the-blanks there for those of you that are following along with those sermon notes. And in 1 John chapter 4, we see this section that many of us are aware of, and before I read it, I, I'd encourage you this week, if you're looking for some time to spend in Scripture and in some quiet time, uh, read, read the letter of 1 John. It's five chapters long. It won't take you too long, but sit with it, perhaps read it more slowly. And again, remember that the Apostle John and every writer of our New Testament they don't take this idea of love and separate it from Jesus. They don't misunderstand that. They know that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. They know that he's the exact representation of the Father. They know, as Jesus says, he and the Father are one. And so when John writes these words, we see explicitly what love is. In verse 7 of John chapter 4, it says, Beloved, Let us love one another because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love God does not know God, for God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, since God loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God lives in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us His Spirit, and we have seen and do testify that the Father has sent His Son as the Savior of the world. God abides in those who confess that Jesus is the Son of God, and they abide in God. So we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and those who abide in love abide in God, and God abides in them. I could keep reading. I keep talking about how it gives us boldness. I could talk about or read that perfect love casts out fear. But can we just consider before we think about ourselves and, and where that love goes, that it's clear that concretely God gives us Jesus Christ so that we can understand what love Really is his laying down of his life for us, not just for me, not just for you, but for the entirety of this world, those before us and those after us. What do we do? Uh, we've heard this before, we've heard sermons on it before. You'll even not feel like this next point is an original saying because it really is so basic and yet so difficult. Jesus demonstrates that since God is love, our new way of living is aimed at continually responding to Christ's love by seeking to holy love God and daily love others. You've heard it, right? I've heard it. Love God, love others the greatest commandments, to love the Lord our God with our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength, and the second is just like it, to love our neighbor as ourself. What do we do, though, with something that seems so simple and yet really is a lot harder than what it looks like? I'm convinced that a big reason why I struggle to continually respond to God's love and bear His image and reflect His love and love others is because there's another type of question that I've asked over and over in my life, and it looks a lot more personal. I've asked questions like, how am I worth loving? Go ahead and type that out in the comment section. How am I worth loving? You see, we could ask questions like, Why is this happening? or How is this loving? or God, what are you doing? But have you not, in quiet moments or perhaps in loud moments, expressed frustration because there is an incredibly large disconnect or chasm between what you hear being talked about or spoken about or sung about in all these songs that God is love and Jesus is love and he demonstrates that for us and yet you still find yourself feeling like well he loves them but certainly not me. What is it about your story, your life, your situation, this moment right now or the next moment where you feel less confident about proclaiming that God is love? There are times for sure when it's a little bit easier to feel like God is loving us, are there not? When we feel dialed in, maybe when we've read our bibles a little bit longer maybe we made it to two sunday services in a row maybe we went out and we did something that we deemed or saw loving maybe we spoke kindly i don't know what it is but aren't there times in our life where we feel like the scorecard's a little bit more in our favor and maybe just maybe in that moment we've worked our way back into god's favor in the way that he sees us we could say and i could say that's not how it works we could say that his love is unconditional. We could say that Jesus Christ demonstrates for once and for all on the cross that God is love, that we are forgiven and accepted so long as we say yes to that sacrifice. But still, what is it about your life that questions whether or not you are worth Loving, I want to show us a, a quick picture here before we begin to wrap this up. And uh, that little guy there—that's Dad that and Long named him. And that was September 25th, 2012. Uh, I, I would have been in my early 20s, and that was. Thadden's first night on planet Earth. And I'll never forget that night. uh, Mallory was sleeping and I kept him up. Well, I didn't keep him up. He kept me up all night. (laughs) And I decided in the interim spaces where he would be comfy and sound asleep that I would just look at him. And I don't sleep well in general, but I didn't want to go to sleep that night. I just wanted to look at my boy over and over and over again. And I talked to him as he slept and his mouth slept. And like I've done with all three of our boys that evening, I introduced him to the first time to someone who loves him so much more than I'll ever love him. I talked to him about Jesus for the very first time. And just like with all of our boys, he got some tears on his fresh baby skin as I tried to express that as his earthly dad I was going to screw up so much and I have and that even though I love him unconditionally there would be so much about the way that I would treat him and live with him and at times ignore him or frustrate him or do wrong by him that would seem to indicate that I don't love him but My actions and the way that I've tried to do this haven't changed the fact that no matter what, when I look at that boy and when I look at those other two, I would do anything for them. I would do anything for them to understand more than anything, more than the fact that I love them, that there is a God who loves them so much that he would empty out himself and physically demonstrate that for us in person and live and on a cross. And so wherever you're watching from, as you look on this image of a young sinful person like me and this child, but you remember that regardless of your sin and your brokenness and how far you are, God is absolutely near. And that as you profess Jesus Christ is Lord and actively look to him, he wants to transform you. And a big part of that transformation is is simply believing and calling yourself back to over and over the fact that you are loved. So here's that final fill in the blank. If God is love and Jesus is love, you, we, I, we are, I am loved. Instead of telling you to just do something, this morning. would you try and sit was what doesn't feel accurate or real that some way somehow regardless of the moment for every moment of your being you have always been and you always will be and you are so loved by God. And can I confess it's so easy for me to say that to you, and I'm praying and asking God to invade the spaces of my heart that want to say that's for you and not for me. I'm loved by God. You're loved by God. And if we begin to receive that over and over, then this life of actively looking to him means that we can start to just respond in bits and pieces to a world that is in need of knowing the love that's made real through Jesus the Christ. You're loved by God. Let's pray.